So, starting back with 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let me uh, remind you, in case you weren't here last week or before or ever, we are studying 1 Corinthians. We are making our way through it verse by verse. We're hearing what the Apostle Paul uh, had to say to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was a thriving cosmopolitan city, of course, with a new Christian community that Paul planted. Uh, the, the city of Corinth is on an isthmus, a uh, port city in the southern part of present-day Greece. Uh, the world passed through, passed by Corinth. So it was a cosmopolitan city, a port city, sort of the Las Vegas, New York of the ancient world, um, very Greco-Roman. Anytime I use the phrase Greco-Roman, that's just the world of Paul's day that wasn't his Jewish world and the Jewish Christian world. The Greco-Roman world, that's the prevailing world of Paul's day. So Corinth was a, a very much a, a thriving Greco-Roman city, which means many, many gods, uh, which also means many, many different sexual moralities. Even in the ancient world, among the people who didn't have a problem with Corinth, uh, they, there was the term to Corinthianize. Uh, that became a, 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 a Greek uh, euphemism. And that just literally meant to engage in sexually immoral behavior. So that tells you something about the city of Corinth. So here's Paul in that city with many, many gods, many, many uh, different sets of morality. There was the great temple to Aphrodite on the Acro Corinth behind the downtown of the city that had like a thousand temple prostitutes. You, you can imagine how you used a temple prostitute to offer worship to Aphrodite. Uh, but that's the port city, and that, that is part of the Greco-Roman world. Many gods, many different moralities. Um, and by the way, if you have multiple gods, it really helps everybody get along well because you just have your God and I have my God and nobody has to, you know, care. Um, so as soon as monotheism developed, Judaism, and that's why Jews in this period are just seen as odd. You know, and everybody thought, yeah, you're peculiar people. You just believe in one God and you got weird rules. You got... They, so, they sort of let Judaism just exist because it was ancient. It, it predated the, the Greco-Roman world. But Christianity came along and we were prosecuted and persecuted uh, because even though we were Jewish, uh, the longer we were there, we, the less connected to Judaism we were. So we just kind of stepped outside of the favored status that Jews had in the first century, and we just were disliked because we just had a problem with many different Jews and many different sexual moralities or moralities. Um, we, we had a problem with you saying, you have your God and I'll have my God, and we sing Kumbaya and go down the street. You know, the, I mean, the problem in the ancient world that Paul keeps combating it was no problem to get his audience to accept Jesus as God. The problem was accept Jesus only as God. You can't add him to your list. And the, the, the world of his day would just add him to the list and got along. But Judaism Christianity doesn't offer that option. So that's Corinth. That's Corinth. And Paul here, you know, is writing to the church at Corinth because they have embraced Christ. They're trying to be faithful Christians, um, but there's a very small, even Jewish 
population here in Corinth. So they weren't raised Jews. They're not well-connected to Judaism. So they really are starting from scratch with this one God thing, with this um, morality of the Jewish faith thing. They're starting from scratch. So the way I like to look at the Corinthians very simplistically is, you know, the Corinthians remind me, I wish that when people came to Christ, there would be a delete button. You know, you can just get rid of a bunch of old stuff, but there's no delete buttons on human beings. We take our stuff with us, and Paul's dealing with their stuff. Uh, The other way I like to think of the church at Corinth is because we're talking spiritual gifts in this section of 1 Corinthians. The other way I like to talk about Corinth is they were a very gifted, gifted, charismatic, spirit-filled congregation. Lots of supernatural activities happening in Corinth. Uh, So they have the gifts, those special enablings or endowments from the Holy Spirit. Uh, They have those in abundance because they have received Christ and the Holy Spirit. Uh, What they're lacking is the fruit of the Spirit. That's why in the midst of chapter 12 and 14 is that beautiful chapter 13, that, that hymn to love. You need to exercise your gifts in love, not exercise your gifts in arrogance and pride. And that's what was happening in Corinth. So Paul's straightening them out. Uh, he, he spent, the only, he spent uh, two and a half years in Ephesus. That's the longest he ever stayed in one place. He spent about 18 months in Corinth. So he was there, but they were a big-time project. So even after he leaves, he's, there, he's writing back answering questions they should have known the answer to. Um, you know, like we did in chapter 5. Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul had to say, incest, bad idea. You know, he shouldn't have even had to answer that. But they, they, they were never Jewish. You know, they came from a worldview that uh, sexual activity was just for recreation. So, you know, they didn't understand all these Jewish rules and guidelines. It was just for recreation. It was just a bodily recreational thing. So Paul's having to work on these people. Uh, And that's why we saw a lot about uh, sexual morality early on in the letter. Um, But where we're at now, we are in these sections where he's talking about worship, really. Particularly, Particularly next week, we'll look at that section in 1 Corinthians where Paul says to women to be silent in the church. And people have misused that, misunderstood that, haven't read the context. So I think you'll find next week about as interesting as all this talk about tongues that we've been doing. But next week he's going to do that. There's just a few verses that have been so controversial at the end of 1 Corinthians 14 because he's talking to a group of women there that didn't know how to shut up. And he's helping them learn that. And some people think that Paul meant that all women for all time in all places were to shut up. And he wasn't saying that. Uh, it's very clear that he had a group that he was dealing with in Corinth. Anyway, that's next week. So that's women in the church and one of Paul's misunderstood verses. But we're here still at this point where he's talking about gifts. We've looked at some of the list. He's really talking about two in particular here. The gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Um, he's talking a lot about the gift of tongues, whether it's praying in tongues just speaking in tongues, uh, a revelation, or singing in tongues, you're going to be introduced to today. He's talking about the gift of tongues um, He's because the Corinthians were not keeping that gift in its proper place. Uh, 
particularly in worship. Because again, it's very public. It's supernatural. It can lend itself to arrogance and pride. And the Corinthians had that issue. And he's saying here that prophecy, he's going to make it very clear, he's already done so, he's going to make it very clear that prophecy is the far greater gift uh, compared to speaking in tongues. So that's, that's what he's doing here. He's going, he's going to make sure you understand gifts is a good thing. I mean, the gifts of tongues is a good thing, uh, but prophecy is a better thing. Again, tongues we've talked about, that is ecstatic speech. Ecstatic, spirit-filled speech. It's, um, it's the Spirit, Holy Spirit, capital S, in you, working with your spirit, little s, um, and, and creating sound that is either a prayer language, or you can sing in it, or it can be a way that God speaks to a congregation. We've seen that already. You're going to revisit that here. Um, and that's wonderful, Paul's going to say. But again, prophecy, prophecy speaking the mind of God. Now, you know, sometimes it's just simply defined as preaching. But it's speaking the mind of God, explaining the will of God to people, uh, revealing God's plan purposes to people. So again, if if he was talking to a Jewish community, he wouldn't even have to say to them, prophecy is more important than speaking in tongues. Because again, the... um, the Jews had a long history of preaching and teaching. You ever heard of a preacher of Zeus? Didn't exist. You know, Judeo-Christianity, Judaism-Christianity, we are a text-based, word-based religion. Greco-Roman religions were more just about certain experiences of worship, whether it's Offering a sacrifice to God or seeing if, seeing if Jupiter will help you out with your crops this week or something. So they knew experiences of worship. And that's why speaking in tongues just fed into that. That was an experience of worship. And Paul has to say to them, prophecy is more important than speaking in tongues. So with that being said, let's pick back up. Uh, we're at verse 13 of chapter 14. So let's see what he says. Therefore, in light of everything that he's already said, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Okay, this is the tongue speaking that he referenced first at the beginning of 1 Corinthians where he talks about speaking in tongues and interpretation. This is the uh, speaking in tongues as a gift of revelation to the body where God would give one person a revelation that is delivered in an ecstatic language for the purpose of the community. But again, if it's for the purpose of the community, what do you have to have? Interpretation. Either someone else in the room has to have the gift of interpretation, or you'll, you'll see that the person who has the gift of tongues can come back behind that with the gift of interpretation, um, saying this is what God is saying to us. So obviously, as far as the good of the community goes, if tongues are happening, the only way the community, uh, the gathered worshiping community, can benefit is if, if there's interpretation. That's why he starts out with, therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he, and this is why I said a, the individual with the tongue can have the interpretation, should pray that he may interpret. And then he's going to give you his reasons for this. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, remember I said, 
there's more than one kind of tongues. And that's why when um, non-charismatics, non-Pentecostals go to Pentecostal charismatic churches, um, there'll be a time of the worship, maybe multiple times in the worship. You'll hear people in the congregation, they're praying in tongues. That's what they're doing. And that's different from just speaking in tongues. And what usually happens if you go to a Pentecostal charismatic church and you, and you, you hear people speaking in tongues and you being a good Methodist, you know your Bible and you've got this interpretation thing going on and, and you go up to the charismatic and say, naughty, 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 you're not supposed to speak in tongues unless it's their interpreter. That charismatic, if they know their Bible, they'll say, I'm not revealing God's mind through tongues. I'm, I'm exercising my prayer language. Uh, that's a different facet of, pray, uh, of, of speaking tongues is a prayer language. This is where we get this from. That's why Paul says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit, and it should be a little s there. By the way, there's no capital letters or no... In the Greek language, it's either all capital letters or all small letters. We English folks, we, we do both in a mix. So you have to kind of decide when you're making Greek into English if it's cap or not. Most of us have decided this word spirit should not be capitalized because it's referencing the human spirit. It's referencing your spirit. So he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. So again, that's what tongues as a prayer language is. My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So you see Paul already believes in two kinds of praying. Praying with the spirit, praying with the mind. Methodists tend to know only one of those two kinds. But I've run across a lot of Methodists that know the other kind. And they exercise that other kind of praying in a way that would make Paul happy, as you'll see as we go through the rest of this section. But anyway, says, he says, If I pray in the tongue, my spirit prays, my mind is unfruitful, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, Paul says, but I will pray with my mind also, Paul says, is both. You know, John Wesley said, I'm told, people would rather run from east to west than stop in the middle. It's, you know, parts of the church are just about emotionalism. Parts of the church are just about intellectualism. Guess what it should be? Both. Paul knew that. So he says, yeah, I pray with my spirit, but I pray with my mind. Also, I will sing with my spirit. You know, if you've ever been in a charismatic Pentecostal setting and heard singing in tongues, it can be a very beautiful thing. Uh, he says, I sing with my spirit, but I also sing with my, I, also, I will sing with my mind also. Again, we Methodist, and Paul would probably say this way it should always be. In corporate worship, we sing with our minds. Because otherwise... You don't know what I'm singing. It's not doing you any good. Now, privately, but in corporate worship, singing with the mind is just a whole lot more beneficial for everyone else. Paul's going to illustrate that. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in a position of an outsider say amen? If you, if you give thanks or sing or whatever in, in tongues, they can't, no one can say amen to that. Because what, what does amen mean? I agree, so be it. Uh, when you, it's kind of interesting right here. This is, when you say amen, you're speaking Hebrew. I assume you know that. But what's interesting about the fact we still speak Hebrew in certain places, amen, hallelujah, maybe shalom. Um, what you see here in the text, this is one of the, 
earliest examples we have that the early Christians, because these are not Jewish people here in Corinth, but the early Christian community kept using the word amen. We, we, we kept a little bit of the Hebrew. Even if we knew no, no other Hebrew, we kept some Hebrew. Hallelujah. Amen. So amen was already part, it was kept uh, in, in the Christian worship among non-Jewish people, among non-Hebrew speaking people. So you see that illustrated here. But he's just saying if you, if you give thanks in a tongue, I can't even say amen to that because I don't know what you, you're thanking God for. Because, again, he's making the case, speaking in tongues is not necessarily beneficial for anyone else. So, uh, you know, I want to be able to say amen to what you just thanked God for. And you have to use, you have to use your words, as I used to tell my children. You have to use your words, your English words, if you want me to say amen to your thanksgiving. Um, so there you see the use of the word amen. Look at verse 17. For you will be giving thanks well enough. So again, he's acknowledging you can thank God speaking in tongues. But the other person is not being built up. You know, we're, we, should, we should always be about the other person. We're a heavily narcissistic age in our culture. It's all about me. Um, it's not. Shouldn't be. We shouldn't want to. You know, I remember as a little kid being taught, because I was blessed. I was brought up in Sunday school. I was taught that joy, the way to find joy in life is to focus on what? Jesus, then others, then yourself. I was taught that as a little kid. You know, our culture doesn't even know that today. But yeah, so, you know, speaking in tongues doesn't necessarily build up the other person. And Paul is all about, and we should be, all about building up the other person. Verse 18. Notice what Paul says. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Uh, just to remind you, last week... Uh, where we looked at verse um, um, verse 5, same chapter. He said, now I want you all to speak in tongues. So you can't make a case Paul's anti-tongues. He just said, I want you all to speak in tongues. And now he said, with a little bit of arrogance maybe, I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he's not opposed to speaking in tongues. He, he wants to make sure the people in Corinth understand that. So he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind. Um, that's what I try to do from the pulpit on Sunday mornings. Sometimes my mind's a little foggier than others, but I'm trying to speak from my mind and my heart. Uh, he says, I, I, nevertheless, I would rather in church, in church. Notice, in church. Again, I'll go back because some of you may not have been here. John Wesley believed in tongues as appropriate for private worship. And I know people in mainline churches, traditional churches, who have the gift of tongues, but they pretty much have accepted what I think Paul is teaching here, that it really is for private worship. It doesn't really benefit the body. I, I, I'm sure I've mentioned to you that in every church I've pastored, and the only thing I've pastored stayed United Methodist churches, I've had people who had the gift of tongues. They would pray in tongues sometimes during worship, like during a hymn or at the communion rail, but it was always so quietly, unless you were right there beside them, you, you, you wouldn't have known it. And, it. and you might have heard them doing something, but you just thought you didn't understand what they were praying. But that's why John Wesley, and I you know, shouldn't shock you, I agree with John Wesley, uh, the gift of tongues is more appropriate for personal private worship uh, than for corporate worship. And the reason John 
Wesley believed that is looks like that's what Paul is saying here. So he says, you know, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in church I'd rather speak five words in my mind than 10,000 words in a tongue. In the Greek, that is one word, 10,000. That's just the one word for the largest number that there is with one word in the Greek language. So you say, I'd rather speak five words that build up another human being, another brother or sister in Christ, than, than a million words in a tongue. So to wrap up this section, verse 20, brothers or sisters, do not let, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Uh, now this is an important thing for Methodists to know. Because we Methodists still occasionally, not much, we will use the word perfect in this sense, in the old sense, in the biblical sense. Uh, we will, I mean, when I was ordained as a Methodist, I was asked, do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? And the, the expected answer is yes, um, because if not, what am I, what am I expecting? Um, to just be a reprobate all my life? You know, but I'm expecting God to perfect me. Now, when we Methodists, like the historic church, like the King James, use that word, what we mean by perfect is maturity. Let me illustrate this way. When Elizabeth, my child, one of them, was six years old. No, well, this, is, this is a little bit of a fantasy, but when Elizabeth was six years old, let's say I'm taking her to the doctor for a checkup. Um, Tammy spoiled me in that world, but anyway, let's pretend I'm taking her to the doctor's checkup. I'm taking my six-year-old to the doctor for a checkup. Now, what I want to know from that doctor is I don't hear that doctor say after the checkup, she is a perfect six-year-old. You know, she is where she's supposed to be. She is where she needs to be. She is what she is created to be as a six-year-old. That's what we mean by perfection. That's what we mean by maturity. Um, we don't mean by perfection what the culture around us means by perfection. We will never be sinlessly perfect. You just need to be where God wants you at right now. And that won't be where God wants you at six months from now, by the way. But, you know, let's say you're an eight-year-old in Christ. You need to be a perfect eight-year-old in Christ. You need, you know how educators, Susan, educators, you have kind of a list what you expect kids to be able to do at certain ages. And if you don't see that list, you may have something going on. So that's why there's this such thing as a perfect six-year-old, perfect ten-year-old. You know what to expect at that age. That's the way Paul, John Wesley, the Christian church, that's what we mean by uh, being made perfect in love, perfection, maturity. Uh, we, we should get up every morning and say, God, please let me be a mature Christian. That doesn't mean you've got to be like Mother Teresa, but it does mean like you need to be where God wants you to be right now. Understand what I'm saying? That's what we mean by maturity. And, pa and Paul and God expects that, and that's why he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in, ev in evil, but in your thinking be mature. I've, there's been a lot of people... I'm talking to myself now, but I want to say to a lot of people in the church, God wants you to be, okay, God wants you to be childlike, not childish. You know, sometimes we just need to look at each other and say, grow up. Uh, some people just never quite grow up. It's like they get stuck. You know, it's fine when you're three years old. Maybe it's fine well, I, may, I'll give you, I might give you through middle school, 
Probably not. Let's say I give you through middle school. You know, it's fine at those ages to think the world revolves around you. But at some point, you got to grow up. The world doesn't revolve around you. It never was meant to. And you don't want it to, by the way. So that's what we mean by maturity. Uh, anyway, and then he's going to give some examples here. Verse 21, in the law, or in the scripture, it literally says law, nomos, because uh, Paul is, is Jewish. Um, but it, it, some translations say in the scripture. In the scripture, it is written. And he quotes a text from Isaiah 28, which is interesting. By people of strange tongues... And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Well, Jews would know what all this means. He's, he's referencing uh, what we would call Isaiah chapter 28. But don't feel bad, these Greco-Roman folks in Corinth don't have a clue what he means either, because they're not Jewish. Uh, Paul knows what he means. What this verse is from in Isaiah 28 is God is saying that, you know, the Assyrians are going to come and conquer the children of Israel. So these Assyrians who speak a different tongue, speak a different language, a language the people in Israel can't understand, you know, going to be on their streets, going to conquer their lands. So there they are. So what he's saying is their tongues, an unknown tongue, tongues you don't comprehend or can interpret is a sign of God's judgment. The Assyrians have shown up. So he's saying that you've got to be careful with even the gift of speaking in tongues. It, can, it might be a symbol of judgment. And what he's actually saying here is that for people who are outside the Christian faith, the Israelites who don't understand the Assyrians... For people outside the Christian faith, it really may be a sign of judgment. They don't have a clue what we're talking about. Whether you exercise the gift or not, people outside the faith don't even have a clue what you're talking about. So it might just be judging them. It's sort of like, I think I did this once. I'll make a confession. Every time I did it Saturday, whenever I do a funeral and I, I sort of use the ritual of the United Methodist Church because it's traditional, when I do a funeral at Graveside, one of the things that happens at Graveside is the recitation of the, of the Lord's Prayer or the praying of the Lord's Prayer. That, that's always important to me at Gravesides uh, for two reasons. Because as soon, and well, as, when I pray the Lord's Prayer, there are people there who know it and there are people there who don't. You know, I try not to be judgmental, but Saturday I was gathered at a graveside with a bunch of pagans. It was a personal recitation. You know, I could have said 12 times, now we're bold to pray as our Savior Jesus has taught us to pray, saying, it was still just me. <laughs> and, you know, part of me, I'm okay with that. You know, my wife said, don't you know that you, you that, that intimidates people that aren't, I'm like, well, I know. Maybe they'll walk away saying, you know, I might need to know something about this stuff. I mean, when I don't even, I can't even follow somebody else through the Lord's Prayer. That's what he, Paul said here. When the Assyrians came to town and nobody knew it, what they were saying, that could be a sign of judgment on people. So again, he's making the case, be particularly careful of using the gift of tongues when outsiders are around. 
because it may be a sign of judgment. They don't know what we're doing. They don't understand it. It may turn them off. They may run. He's going to say, well, watch what he says. I mean, they may run away thinking we're crazy. So that's why not for public worship. Um, if, if, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in... Wait a minute, go back to 22 after the quotation. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers in this case, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Remember... Pentecost, chapter 2, book of Acts. That's what happened. Uh, people say, well, no, they didn't say. <laughs> Pentecost, they didn't say the early Christians were out of their minds. What did they say in Pentecost? They're drunk. That's what they said on Pentecost. Yeah, need to be a little careful with this. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of the heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face... This is really important. So falling on his face, this outsider who's coming to your midst, so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Um, as I was praying over that this morning, I was reminded that I need to pay attention to what I hope people say after worship services um, or what I pray that you'll say after worship services or what I want you to say after worship services. Um, you know, I, I love that tradition. I've really missed it during COVID. And I'm finished, by the way, if you need to leave. I do have a couple of things I want to talk about that I'm at, I, know, I realize I'm at 12.45. But uh, I, one of the things I miss at COVID is that wonderful tradition of sitting, of standing at the back door and holding, you know, hugging people, shaking hands, getting close enough to you to, you know, hear something from you. Um, and I, it's always been a fascinating experience to hear what people say after worship services. Uh, and there's a wide range of what people say after worship services. Um, you know, I'll never forget one time I was preaching a series on the seven churches of the book of Revelation, and it was the Sunday I was doing Laodicea. Laodicea is the church, you know, that was so lukewarm, Jesus vomited out of his mouth, spit it out of his mouth. So you can't preach on a church of Laodicea without it being sort of a, a sermon that may call us to judgment. You know, um, you can't preach on the church of Laodicea without, you know, lifting some words of condemnation and, you know, the, preaching a sermon from the, the uh, about the church of Laodicea should convict us, should challenge us. Yeah, I remember doing that one Sunday, pouring my heart out, and somebody walked by and said, I enjoyed your sermon today, preacher. I want to say, enjoyed? I'm not sure that was what I was aiming at. You know, but anyway, I, I, I do pay attention to what people say. Notice what Paul wants people to say when they leave a group of Christians. He wants to, and by the way, he's referencing Isaiah chapter 45. He's quoting, he's alluding to, those Greco-Romans probably don't know it, but if there's any Jews in the room, they would. He's alluding to what he wants them to say when they leave is surely God was in this place. I mean, that's what we want people to say when they leave our gatherings. Not good sermon, great music, had a good time, the air conditioner was too high, I was cold, the acoustics were bad. That's fine, you can say it to me anytime you want to. But you know what, I, what, I'm, what I'm waiting for is someone to say, surely God was here today. Um, we need to make, at least that should be our aim for that. So, I'm finished with um, first Corinthians.